Another community-based medical oncologist with a practice focused on breast cancer is Dr. Richard Zelkowitz of Norwalk, Connecticut, who presented the next case. At about 38 years old, this young lady of Ashkenazi descent presented to another institution. We had trouble getting all the data, but it appeared that she had a T1N1 invasive lobular carcinoma, less than 2 centimeters, 1 out of 12 positive lymph nodes, ERPR positive, no HER2 done at that time. She opted to have a mastectomy and apparently adamantly refused all adjuvant therapy. She presented in August of 04 with a breast mass. She refused intervention. In February of 05, she subsequently underwent a lumpectomy and a lymph node dissection. At that time, the pathology revealed a T1B, what was described as a well-differentiated ductal carcinoma with a component of DCIS, ERPR positive, HER2 negative, and again refused adjuvant therapy. Approximately two months later, was admitted to the hospital by the surgeon and described as being very sick. That was when we saw her in consult, severe bony pain, altered mental status, secondary to hypercalcemia, and at that point had staging evaluation, basically had some very nonspecific nodules on her CT of her chest, which we'll come back to, which actually resolved, which were uncertain what they were at the time, and diffuse bony metastasis, no brain mets on CT or MR. Just to clarify, you took care of her the whole time? I met her very briefly in 98. She was at a different institution. I saw her as one of the multiple consultants at that time. And when was the next time you saw her? The next time I saw her was in the hospital when she was sick. And at the time you saw her, was her mental status okay or she was having problems? She was admitted with what we used to see as classic hypercalcemia, which before this I hadn't seen since we started using the bisphosphonates. She had woken up, they were treated appropriately with the fluids and bisphosphonates, and her calcium came down. One of the things we try to do in this forum is address the unusual patient, the unusual situation, and clearly this is unusual. Can you talk a little bit more about the woman herself and why it was she had refused therapy? She's unusual. She's bright. She's educated. She's a correction officer. She has two brothers who are physicians. I got the sense that if everybody says black, she says white. She understands the nature of what's going on, at least when she wasn't hypercalcemic. I obviously now know her for many months. There's always been a piece that sort of doesn't get it, though. And did you get a biopsy on We did. Where was it from? We did a sternal biopsy. What did you see? The sternal biopsy was consistent with breast cancer. It was ER and PR positive, HER2 negative, and was most consistent with her new tumor. So, Julie, can you talk a little bit how you might think through the situation at this point? At this point, she's approximately how old? 45. 45. And did she have any family history of breast or ovarian cancer? I was just wondering if that might have played into some of her her decision-making. Right. Well, she now has bone mets, and it sounds like you've evaluated her for other things. The nodules on the chest turned out to be nothing. So bone predominant or bone-exclusive recurrence. Bone is the first site of distant recurrence in the majority of our patients, and especially the ER positivity would kind of predict more for a bone recurrence as well. I haven't seen a case of hypercalcemia in this setting for a long time either, we generally find it before it gets to this point, and bisphosphonates, fluids, and as you've done, can easily correct this. She really hasn't had any systemic therapy. She's ERPR positive, HER2 negative. I think that continuing the bisphosphonate and initiating endocrine therapy would be my 
first choice. I mean, she was pretty critically ill, and sometimes right. we start chemotherapy in that setting. That might not be wrong, but I think that it's possible that with controlling the calcium that you could get an endocrine agent in. You wouldn't be faulted because she was so ill for starting chemotherapy and then switching over, though. What kind of hormonal therapy? And if you were going to use chemotherapy, what kind of chemotherapy? Well, I'm assuming at 45 that she's still premenopausal. Is that right? She is. And actually, we talked about tamoxifen in, in the context of all this. And again, you talk to her and you get the sense that she understands this and she's educated. She didn't want to take tamoxifen because it would interfere with the potential thought of any future pregnancies. So... Did you discuss other types of hormones or that? She was really sick and she was in really severe pain. It wasn't the kind of thing where you could just radiate her pelvis and that would address her pain. She had diffused pain. She ended up on steroids. So, no, I didn't at that point. I guess as you describe her further, this is sounding like a patient maybe that needs a response right. maybe a little quicker than later. So my concern was, was because she was so sick and frankly, based on her history, I figured I had one shot to either make her feel better and get her to believe in conventional therapy or not. And she had been doing all the homeopathic stuff. And then she said to me that, well, whatever you do, if I lose my hair, I'm done. So we had a few limitations there. And I don't normally use two drugs in metastatic breast cancer, but I treated her with navel bean and Zolota. How did she do? She got better. So what's going on since that time? So we did navel bean for about three months, and she said, I can't take the IV medicine, and I normally would have treated her, frankly, a little bit longer. And we scanned her, and these lung nodules, which were small, seemed to resolve. And clinically, she was better. I don't know that her bone scan changed that much in three months, and she's been on Zolota now. Rich, any comments? I guess one of the things this gets into is how far you're willing, as an oncologist, to stretch what you want to do because of patient interests. We always have cases like this that come up, people who maybe they've had bad experiences in their family with chemotherapy. They want to limit the choices that the oncologists have. Rich, any thoughts? These patients who are seemingly making choices that for the vast majority of people would seem not constructive or helpful to themselves, I actually see our psychologist to explore any underlying reasons for that. Many times it's fear, even though it doesn't come out on the surface. I mean, if that fear can be addressed, maybe they can make more rational choices. So that's my comment on how I handle these kind of patients. For this kind of patient, in terms of systemic therapies, if she was still having menstrual periods, and I assume that she was, I would definitely have strongly recommended to her that she be treated with some type of ovarian ablation with tamoxifen, aside from the psychological difficulties because randomized trials have, have demonstrated survival advantages in the metastatic setting for a combined approach like this. And in this type of disease that to me is kind of the classic ER positive, bone only, indolent disease, I would have been hard pressed to give chemotherapy to a patient. She sounds like she was very ill. Would that have prompted you to consider chemotherapy? Well, it's kind of a dogma in breast oncology that you get faster responses with chemotherapy, but there actually is no evidence of that in clinical trial literature, none. And so based on the fact that I can control her symptoms in terms of she has hypercalcemia, bisphosphonates are incredibly good at doing that, and pain control with analgesics, that's what I would have done to control these symptoms, these 
symptoms were not, certainly they're not immediately life-threatening in any way, and you should have, you had a really good chance of gaining control with these measures that I've gone over. And what I would explain to the patient is the chance of response to an endocrine therapy in this situation is at least as great as chemotherapy with less side effects. I mean, I try and use logic with patients to let them come around to it themselves. I'm curious about the algorithm for using hormonal therapy in the premenopausal patient with metastatic disease. Julie, let's say this patient did get ovarian suppression along with tamoxifen, had a good response, and then progressed. What would be your next therapy? Well, I don't think I ever want her ovarian function to resume, so I think that no matter what we think about ovarian suppression in the adjuvant setting in this metastatic patient, I would vote to shut down her ovaries now. And I think she's going to need some time to gain trust and all in order to understand that the fertility issue is is not really very realistic here. I would normally go to an aromatase inhibitor next. I always am cautious in using an aromatase inhibitor along with an LHRH analog because there can be some breakthrough using LHRH analogs in terms of ovarian function, and I worry that you're not getting all of the benefit of the aromatase inhibitor. So I do periodically check blood levels of her hormones. If this had been a patient who wasn't hoping for future fertility, I would have suggested just removing the ovaries. And then I don't have the issue of the LHRH analog and the AI. If I saw her doing some breakthrough, fulvestrant would certainly be reasonable as another option here of endocrine therapy. The bone pain (coughs) issue, I think it's a little bit underestimated what the bisphosphonates can do for bone pain. And a study that was done in Japan recently of zoledronic acid versus placebo, it was required for Japanese registration, and they didn't have pomidronate as their standard. So it was a zoledronate versus nothing in breast cancer bone mets. That is probably one of the best ways to look at what happens in breast cancer patients with bone mets from a dose or a couple of doses of bisphosphonates. And in that study, they did carefully look at pain scores and all. And it's pretty dramatic what the mean drop in the average pain score is from even just one dose of IV zoledronic acid. So that could have helped the pain too right there. She's been getting bisphosphonates regularly. We actually talked about that. We actually talked about at our institution that the radiation oncologists have commented that they seem to be seeing less patients for palliative radiation for bony disease since the advent of the bisphosphonates. Oh, definitely. I mean, clinical trials bear that out. There's less radiation to bone. And I agree with Julie. And just in terms of empirically and anecdotally, when the bisphosphonates came out in the clinic, I think that I saw just outside of a clinical trial evidence, patients just did better. They had a better quality of life. So now this lady presented April 05, correct? Yeah. Right. So we didn't have the Avastin data yet in metastatic disease at the point that this woman presented. Is that something, Rich, that you think would be a consideration in a patient like this? Chemotherapy naive is going to receive chemotherapy. In this case, she's chosen to receive capecitabine and venerelbine because of her concerns about hair loss. Would you consider using bevacizumab in a situation like this? According to our clinical trial results, it would have been a reasonable option. She hasn't received chemotherapy. I would have stuck to the taxane. I would not have combined it with Zolota necessarily. The bevacizumab certainly is an option in metastatic disease. 
I'll have to say I do have a problem philosophically with the cost of this drug. So it hinders my use of it. Have you used it in a non-protocol setting? I have used it actually in two patients, both of which requested it. Julie, what's your take on this? I do think that the data for bevacizumab is pretty strong. You know, the E2100 study of paclitaxel weekly plus minus bevacizumab doubled the time to progression. It went from 6 to 11.4 months or something. I mean, that's a pretty profound improvement in time to progression. It has been tested in combination with capecitabine in later line breast cancer, so I think we're comfortable with the toxicity. It doubled the response rate. It didn't meet the endpoint of a statistical improvement in time to progression. I think maybe that means that what the laboratory study suggests, that you should use these anti-angiogenic agents earlier line as opposed to later line. But I would feel comfortable giving it with capecitabine, knowing that we have toxicity data on the combination of the two. And I actually am pretty impressed with it. We're looking to move it into virtually all of our adjuvant settings. It's not approved at this point in time in breast cancer. And so if you are trying to give it, you end up with sometimes a battle with the insurance companies. But I do think the data is there to back it. Again, this case kind of exemplifies why medicine in many ways is more of an art than a science because you had to work with her. You had to gain her trust and she had some very specific demands, some of which don't necessarily seem like the best decisions to us, but they were her choices and you had to work with what she was agreeable with. I would have kind of gone the hormone route to start with and then played out my chemo bevacizumab option later. Do you think that if and when she does progress that she might be more open to hormones? I think so. I think she's learning more about this. We spent two visits discussing osteonecrosis. So she reads. And so we've talked about osteonecrosis. So she has an intrinsic ability to read and understand some of the literature. She just doesn't make good judgments. And anybody who comes into the hospital in our institution is going to be bombarded with social services. So it wasn't an overt psychiatric issue. And I think as time goes on, she will be able to understand and go forward. I think the other side of this is is that if you're dogmatic with her, then you're going to lose her. And she walked away from adjuvant therapy at 38 for somebody I would have unquestionably treated with positive nodes at that time. So you sort of had to play by her rules. Otherwise, conceivably, she would have refused all therapy. So... With all of these new biologics, we have to deal with it. It's not bevacizumab per se. I think it's actually a tragedy in many ways that we never really sorted out the optimal timing of trastuzumab and whether to stop it after progression first line. We just all keep giving it and giving it and giving it in the trial that we tried to do to evaluate whether it benefited you to continue. It didn't enroll anybody because the patients and the doctors wanted to all give second line, third line trastuzumab. We also have right now data for a year of trastuzumab in the adjuvant setting, and we need to look at shorter and longer durations. We've got the Harris study. We'll look at one versus two years. That little Finnish study with nine weeks suggested at least some benefit. I mean, the 50% reduction in recurrences for nine weeks, which was a small trial, and we have to better evaluate it. But we really need to better define how much you need, how long you need it, and pick the right population who's going to benefit and not give it to all of the patients who won't benefit. And that's the way we're going to have to pursue all of these biologics. But 
in the metastatic setting, when you can double the time to progression, and you were looking for a quick response, you had a doubling of the response rate. Doesn't mean it happened faster necessarily, but right. a doubling of the response rate. You know, I think that's data that pushes us to want to use these drugs. I don't know how to solve the cost problems. Yeah, and it's actually it's a dilemma for us as a CME group. We don't want to turn into a political forum here. We're trying to right. focus on the clinical science. But Rich, and actually your comments remind me of some by your colleague, Ken Osborne, who we had in a similar forum and expressed similar concerns. I mean, everybody's concerned, but to the point of affecting clinical care. So I guess my question to you is you have a patient in front of you that you're going to start on first-line metastatic disease with paclitaxel, mm-hmm. and you know that the insurance company will pay for the Avast, and it's approved, and they'll pay for it. Are you going to use it or not? No. Really? So how would you look at the clinical risk-benefit ratio, putting aside the cost in that situation in terms of the benefit to the patient and the risk? Well, I look at this in a different way. This is not a curative therapy. It doesn't prolong survival in, in a way that's it's a couple of months. Yes, it does prolong time to progression. You're right. These are kind of philosophical issues that you can go on for ad infinitum. There's no right or wrong answer. But... That's the way that I see it. The benefit of this drug compared to the cost doesn't look very favorable to me. If I'm the patient in that situation, I know that my time to progression is going to be doubled, the response rate is going to be doubled, not much in the way of toxicity, but my insurance company is going to have to fork out a considerable amount of money. Mm-hmm. I think I might want to be treated. Okay. <laughs> Sorry to be the devil's but, advocate no, here. Well, that's perfectly fine. The flip side of that is that these accelerations in costs are not sustainable. So at some point, you will have to tell a patient, I cannot treat you because it's too much money. Now, you can wait until five years from now to do that, or you can try and figure that out beforehand. I'm curious about the take of the community docs on this question. Let I think if a patient requested a vast, and it's very difficult to talk them out of it. Alan? Yeah, I think that this is not an issue you can solve on the individual doctor-patient level, the escalating cost of health care and pharmaceuticals. I think when you're dealing with an individual patient, you really have to do what's best for that patient. And I think these other issues are, they are crucial issues that will affect the entire country and the profession, but they need to be dealt with on a political level by ASCO and by the NCI and by the national government. But I don't think we can do it as individual docs with a patient in front of us. I don't think we'll accomplish anything useful. Atif? Yeah, I agree with you 100%. We struggle with that, Richard. I understand exactly what you are saying, and we have a lot of issues in this country. We have to educate our kids and to defend ourselves. I understand that, but I struggle with it. If I have to decide for every patient, 40-year-old woman, whether three to four months is significant or not to the majority of people it is, Therefore, I need to ask society to decide on this, and we need to decide soon. You are right. Can I just say one question about the bisphosphonates? The question sometimes comes up with a woman with stable bone metastases, how long to continue the bisphosphonates? Do you need to give it once a month? Can you stretch out the interval? When you're dealing with the risk of osteonecrosis of the jaw, is there any preference of one agent versus another? Do we have any data that address these questions? Julie? So terrific questions. And this is another issue that you wish had already been decided in the setting of a clinical trial. There is a trial that's going on now 
called the Optimize trial that after a full year of monthly zoledronic acid for women with bone mets due to breast cancer, there is a randomization between continuing for the next year monthly versus going to quarterly versus going to placebo. It's all placebo controlled, so you're getting something every month. And if in the placebo arm you have an SRE, you get in a blinded way reinitiated on the zoledronic acid. I think that's a critical trial to be done to see if you could actually lengthen the interval. A really nice trial, it's a little complicated to explain to patients, but it's being done by Rob Coleman in the UK, is the Bismarck trial. And this is upfront bone mets. You're about to start a bisphosphonate, and markers of bone resorption, the urinary antilopeptide, determine your dose for the next three months. And so every three or four months, it might be 16-week intervals, you have a marker of bone resorption done, and your dose for the next 16 weeks is based on what your bone resorption was. So up front, this woman obviously had disease that was progressing rapidly, would have probably benefited from several months in a row of zoledronic acid, but then your chemo might have gotten well under control. The bone resorption may very well have gone way down due to the chemo, due to the bisphosphonate. And so after a four-month period, you might be switching her in the Bismarck trial. You either go to the next dose isn't for 16 weeks, or there's a dose in the middle, or you get it monthly, depending on three different levels of bone resorption. With respect to the ONJ issue, Everything is kind of retrospective, observational. We're hoping to do a prospective registry in SWOG, which is moving through the approval process. But to date, the pomidronate data looks like it's not quite the same rate as the zoledronic acid. Zoledronic acid may be a little higher incidence and at a little earlier time point, but very unclear. And I'm not sure that that is a distinguishing toxicity in terms of picking which agent to use. I know that the dental community is very concerned, even in women on osteoporosis doses of bisphosphonates in doing dental work now. And we've got to address this head on and really determine what are the risk factors and what is the real incidence. Can you just follow up, Rich, on where this woman is right now? She's still on the Zolota? She's still on Zolota. How long has it been now? It's since? probably been another four months since we stopped the navel vein. We just had the discussion about osteonecrosis, and she said, I'm either going to stop it or I'm going to do it less frequently, so we're doing it every three months. And she's doing okay. She's clinically pain-free. She's returned to her quality of life. She hasn't returned to work. Any side effects or problems with the Zolota? No, we actually started with the two weeks on and one week off, and frankly, she couldn't get it. She was just getting it all mixed up. So she's on a two-week dose divided over three weeks as a continuous daily dose, and that's what she's getting because she could remember to take six pills a day. Wow, that's interesting. Julie, what do we know about continuous Zolota dosing? Nothing. Nothing. So it's an experiment of one. I guess there's some colon data for its use, and that's really all that is. And when I had the problem with her about remembering her to take her pills and not taking her pills, I spoke to my partner who does colon cancer, and he said, there's a little bit of data, and maybe you want to try that, and that's what we've done. I guess another schedule that I've been hearing people starting to talk about and it's being looked at in trials is a week on, week off. Have you tried that, Rich? I haven't with her. Do we know anything about that, Julie, in terms of how that's being studied? I've listened to Larry Norton do the discussions about all the pharmacokinetics and the dosing, and I think when he last talked about it that I heard it was like nine days on would be optimal or something. <laughs> and then it, and it, he says we picked totally the wrong dosing interval and time off, and Larry does the wonderful modeling, you know, that I just kind of trust him in the end when he loses me partway through. But actually the two weeks on, one week off is not necessarily well tested against a variety of other regimens. 
regimen way of dosing this. And usually the week off is to recover from some of the toxicity. So if you've got her on a dose that she's otherwise tolerating, you might not need that time off to recover. How important do you think it was to her to be able to avoid alopecia? It was the game. I mean, she woke up, her calcium went back down, and she said, look, I've walked away before, and if this is my time, you know, we got into that whole philosophical, this, is, you know, this was not one of those 45-minute consults, and she said, if this is my time, and she's got this religious side of her, and she said, then I'll walk away. I mean, you really had to play in her sandbox, otherwise, where is it going to happen? Do you think she would reconsider that in the future? Well, you know, we've talked about the fact that this is a chronic disease and this is unquestionably going to progress and that unquestionably we're going to go on to something different. And I've toyed with the idea of maybe trying to rebroach the issue of hormone therapy with her at this point, but I'm frankly somewhat frightened of that conversation. So I think as time goes on and she hopefully develops more trust in the medical system and the nurses that she's gotten to know and she got to know the infusion nurses. And I must tell you, when you comment about that, I thought I was the only one who thought that. There's a whole subculture that they get involved with. And I think as that time goes on and her children have now been instituted into our support service, that I think that she will, when that happens, be able to take that step, I hope. I think this is a really great case to demonstrate the art of oncology in terms of what you can really do with somebody who starts out in a desperate situation. So she's kept her here and I lost mine. Is <laughs> <laughs>